Chapter Eleven, Part Two of The Ordeal of Mark Twain. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. The Ordeal of Mark Twain by Van Wick Brooks. Chapter Eleven Mustered Out. Part Two the outstanding fact about this later effort of mark twain's is that his energy is concentrated almost exclusively in attacks of one kind or another his mind whether for good or ill has become thoroughly destructive he is consumed by a will to attack a will to abolish a will to destroy sometimes he had written a few years earlier my feelings are so hot that i have to take the pen and put them out on paper to keep them from setting me afire inside he who had become definitely a pessimist we are told at forty-eight in the hour of his great prosperity was possessed now with a rage for destruction who can doubt that this was pathological he was so promiscuous in his attacks had he not as early as eighteen eighty one assailed even the postage rates had he not been thrown into a fury by an order from the post office department on the superscription of envelopes there were whole days one is told when he locked himself up in his rooms and refused to see his secretary when he was like a raging animal consumed with a blind and terrible passion of despair we can hear his leonine roars even in the gentle pages of his biographer mr payne tells how he turned upon him one day and said fiercely anybody that knows anything knows that there was not a single life that was ever lived that was worth living and again i have been thinking it out if i live two years more i will put an end to it all i will kill myself was that a pose as mr howells says was it a mere humorous fancy that plan for exterminating the human race by withdrawing all the oxygen from the earth for two minutes was it a mere impersonal sympathy for mankind that perpetual search for means of easement and alleviation that obsessed interest in christian science in therapeutics was it not all in that sound and healthy frame the index of a soul that was mortally sick mark twain's attack upon the failure of human life was merely a rationalization of the failure in himself and this failure was the failure of the artist in him glance back thirty years hear what he writes to mr howells from italy in eighteen seventy eight i wish i could give those sharp satires on european life which you mention 
but of course a man can't write successful satire except he be in a calm judicial good humor whereas i hate travel and i hate hotels and i hate the opera and i hate the old masters in truth i don't ever seem to be in a good enough humor with anything to satirize it no i want to stand up before it and curse it and foam at the mouth or take a club and pound it to rags and pulp i have got in two or three chapters about wagner's operas and managed to do it without showing temper but the strain of another such effort would burst me that is what had become of the satirist that is what had become of the artist thirty years before he the unconscious sycophant of the crass materialism of the gilded age who had in the innocents abroad poured ignorant scorn upon so many of the sublime creations of the human spirit he the playboy the comrade and emulator of magnets and wire-pullers had begun even then to pay with an impotent fury for having transgressed his own instincts unawares a born artist ridiculing art a born artist hating art a born artist destroying art there we have the natural evolution of a man who in the end wishes to destroy himself and the world how angrily suspicious he is even thus early of all aesthetic pretensions what a fierce grudge he has against those who lay claim to a certain affection for the perverse mysteries of high art they want to get into the dress circle he says by a lie that's what they're after the slave ship for all ruskin's fine phrases reminds him of a cat having a fit in a platter of tomatoes etc etc here we have the familiar figure of the peasant who imagines a woman must be a prostitute because she wears a low-cut dress but the peasant spits on the ground and walks on mark twain cannot take it so lightly that low-cut dress is a red rag to him he foams and stamps wherever he sees it is it not evident that he is the prey of some appalling repression it is not in the nature of man to desire a club so that he can pound works of art into rags and pulp unless they are the symbols of something his whole soul unconsciously desires to create and has been prevented from creating do we ask then why mark twain detested novels it was because he had been able to produce only one himself and that a failure we can understand now that intense will not to believe in the creative life which mark twain revealed in his later writings 
man originates nothing not even a thought shakespeare could not create he was a machine and machines do not create is it possible to mistake the animus in that mark twain was an ardent baconian in that faith he said i find comfort solace peace and never-failing joy i will say nothing of the complete lack of intuition concerning the psychology of the artist revealed in his pamphlet is shakespeare dead it is astonishing that any writer could have composed this that anyone but a retired business man or a lawyer infatuated with ratiocination could have so misapprehended the nature and the processes of the poetic mind but mark twain does not write like a credulous business man indulging his hobby he does not even write like a lawyer feverishly checking off the proofs of that intoxicating evidence he is defiant he exults in the triumph of his own certitude he stamps on shakespeare he insults him he delights in pouring vulgar scorn upon that ingenuous bust in stratford church with its deep 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 subtle 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 expression of a bladder and why because the evidence permits him to believe that shakespeare was an ignorant yokel bacon was the man bacon knew everything bacon was a lawyer see what macaulay says macaulay heaven bless us all therefore bacon wrote the plays is this mark twain speaking the author of the sublime illiteracies of huckleberry finn who had been himself most the artist when he was least the sophisticated citizen it is and he is speaking in character he who asserted that man is a chameleon and is nothing but what his training makes him had long lost the intuition of the poet and believed perforce that without bacon's training those plays could not have been written but would he have stamped with such a savage joy upon that yokel shakespeare if the fact as he imagined that man creates nothing had not had for him a tragic however unconscious significance one can hardly doubt that when one considers that mark twain was never able to follow the bacon ciphers when one considers the emotional prepossession revealed in his own statement that he accepted those ciphers mainly on faith how simple it becomes now the unravelling of that mournful philosophy of his that drab mass of crude speculation of which he said so confidently that it was like the sky you can't break through anywhere how much it meant to him the thought that man is a mere machine an irresponsible puppet entitled to no demerit for what he has failed 
to do dahomey he says somewhere could not find an edison out in dahomey an edison could not find himself out broadly speaking genius is not born with sight but blind and it is not itself that opens its eyes but the subtle influences of a myriad of stimulating exterior circumstances what a comment side by side with mark twain's life upon mr howells's statement that the world in which he came into his intellectual consciousness was large and free and safe large for the satirist with mrs clemens free with mr howells himself and safe with h h rogers if shakespeare had been born and bred on a barren and unvisited rock in the ocean his mighty intellect would have had no outside material to work with and could have invented none and no outside influences teachings mouldings persuasions inspirations of a valuable sort and could have invented none and so shakespeare would have produced nothing in turkey he would have produced something something up to the highest limit of turkish influences associations and training in france he would have produced something better something up to the highest limit of the french influences and training mark twain fails to mention what would have happened to shakespeare if he had been born in america he merely adds but it is enough you and i are but sewing machines we must turn out what we can we must do our endeavor and care nothing at all when the unthinking reproach us for not turning out gobelon there we have his half-conscious verdict on the destiny of the artist in a society as large and free and safe as that of the gilded age yes the tragic thing about an environment as coercive as ours is that we are obliged to endow it with the majesty of destiny itself in order to save our own faces we dwell on the conditions that hamper us destroy us we embrace them with an amor fati to escape from the contemplation of our own destruction outside influences outside circumstances wind the man and regulate him left to himself he wouldn't get regulated at all and the sort of time he would keep would not be valuable there is the complete philosophy of the moral slave who not only has no autonomy but wishes to have none who in fact finds all his comfort in having none and delights in denying the possibility of independence just because he does not possess it himself the pragmatists have escaped this net in their own interestingly temperamental fashion like flying fish by jumping over it it remains nevertheless the characteristic philosophy of americans who have a deep emotional stake 
in the human situation and one might almost say that it honors mark twain we only perceive we are only mortified by the slavery of men when nature has endowed us with the true hunger and thirst for freedom who can doubt indeed that it was the very greatness of his potential force the strength of his instinctive preferences that confirmed in mark twain his inborn calvinistic will to despise human nature that fixed in him the obsession of the miscarriage of the human spirit if the great artist is the freest man if the true creative life is in fact the embodiment of free will then it is only he that is born for greatness who can feel as mark twain felt that the universe is leagued against him the common man has no sense of having surrendered his will he regards it as a mere pretension of the philosophers that man has a will to surrender he eats drinks and continues to be merry or morose regardless of his moral destiny to possess no principle of growth no spiritual backbone is indeed his greatest advantage in a world where success is the reward of accommodation it is nothing to him that man is a chameleon who by the law of his nature takes the color of his place of resort it is nothing to him whether or not as mark twain said the first command the deity issued to a human being on this planet was be weak be water be characterless be cheaply persuadable knowing that adam would never be able to disobey it is nothing to him or rather it is much for it is by this means that he wins his worldly prestige how well for that matter it served the prevailing self in mark twain from the cradle to the grave during all his waking hours the human being is under training it is his human environment which influences his mind and his feelings furnishes him his ideals and sets him on his road and keeps him in it if he leave that road he will find himself shunned by the people whom he most loves and esteems and whose approval he most values the influences about him create his preferences his aversions his politics his tastes his morals his religion he creates none of these things for himself poor mark twain that is the way of common flesh but only the great spirit so fully apprehends the tragedy of it nothing consequently could be more pathetic than the picture mark twain draws in what is man and in his later memoranda of the human mind it is really his own mind he is describing and one cannot imagine anything more unlike the mind of the mature artist 
which is all of a single flood all poise all natural control you cannot keep your mind from wandering if it wants to it is master not you the mind carries on thought on its own hook we are automatic machines which act unconsciously from morning till sleeping time all day long all day long our machinery is doing things from habit and instinct and without requiring any help or attention from our poor little seven by nine thinking apparatus man has habits and his habits will act before his thinking apparatus can get a chance to exert its powers mark twain cannot even conceive of the individual reacting as the mature man as the artist preeminently does upon his instinctive life and controlling it for his own ends he shows us the works of his mental machine racing along from subject to subject a drifting panorama of ever-changing ever-dissolving views manufactured by my mind without any help from me why it would take me two hours to merely name the multitude of things my mind tallied off and photographed in fifteen minutes the mind man has no control over it it does as it pleases it will take up a subject in spite of him it will stick to it in spite of him it will throw it aside in spite of him it is entirely independent of him does he call himself a machine he might better have said a merry-go-round without the rhythm of a merry-go-round mark twain reveals himself in old age as a prey to all manner of tumbling chaotic obsessions his mind rings with rhymes he cannot banish sticks and stumbles over chess problems he has no desire to solve it wouldn't listen it played right along it wore me out and i got up haggard and wretched in the morning a swarming mass of dissociated fragments of personality an utterly disintegrated spirit a spirit that has lost that has never possessed the principle of its own growth always in these speculations however we find two major personalities at war with each other one is the refractory self that wants to publish the book regardless of consequences the other is the insolent absolute monarch inside of a man who is the man's master and who forbids it the eternal conflict of huckleberry finn and aunt polly playing itself out to the end in the theatre of mark twain's soul the interpretation of dreams is a very perilous enterprise contemporary psychology hardly permits us to venture into it with absolute assurance and yet we feel that without doubt our unconscious selves express through this distorting medium 
their hidden desires and fears i generally enjoy my dreams mark twain once told mr paine but not those three and they are the ones i have oftenest he wrote out these three recurrent dreams in a memorandum one of them is long and to me at least without obvious significance but one cannot fail to see in the other two a singular corroboration of the view of mark twain's life that has been unfolded in these pages there is never a month passes he wrote that i do not dream of being in reduced circumstances and obliged to go back to the river to earn a living it is never a pleasant dream either i love to think about those days but there's always something sickening about the thought that i have been obliged to go back to them and usually in my dream i am just about to start into a black shadow without being able to tell whether it is selma bluff or hat island or only a black wall of night another dream that i have of that kind is being compelled to go back to the lecture platform i hate that dream worse than the other in it i am always getting up before an audience with nothing to say trying to be funny trying to make the audience laugh realizing that i am only making silly jokes then the audience realizes it and pretty soon they commence to get up and leave that dream always ends by my standing there in the semi-darkness talking to an empty house i leave my readers to expound these dreams according to the formulas that please them best i wish to note only two or three points mark twain is obsessed with the idea of going back to the river i love to think about those days but there is something sickening in the thought of returning to them too and that is because of the black shadow the black wall of night into which he the pilot sees himself inevitably steering that is a precise image of his life the second dream is its natural complement on the lecture platform his prevailing self had reveled in its triumphs and he says i hate that dream worse than the other had he ever wished to be a humorist he is always trying to make the audience laugh the horror of it is that he has lost in his nightmare the approval for which he had made his great surrender turn again to the last pages in mr paine's biography to the moment when he lay breathing out his life in the cabin of that little bermuda packet two dreams beset him in his momentary slumber one of a play in which the title role of the general manager was always unfilled he spoke of this now and then when it had passed and it seemed to amuse him the other was a discomfort a college assembly was attempting to confer upon him some degree which he did not want 
once half roused he looked at me searchingly and asked isn't there something i can resign and be out of all this they keep trying to confer that degree upon me and i don't want it then realizing he said i am like a bird in a cage always expecting to get out and always beaten back by the wires no mark twain's seventieth birthday had not released him it would have had to release him from himself it cut away the cords that bound him but the tree was not flexible any more it was old and rigid fixed for good and all it could not redress the balance in one pathetic excess alone the artist blossomed that costume of white flannels the temerity of which so shocked mr howells in washington i should like said mark twain to dress in a loose and flowing costume made all of silks and velvets resplendent with stunning dyes so would every man i have ever known but none of us dares to venture it there speaks the born artist the starved artist who for forty years has had to pretend that he was a business man the born artist who has always wanted to be original in his dress and has had to submit to a feverish censorship even over his neckties the artist who longing to look like an orchid has the courage at last and at least to emulate the modest lily and so we see mark twain with his dry and dusty heart washing about on a forlorn sea of banquets and speech-making the saddest the most ironical figure in all the history of this western continent the king the conquering hero the darling of the masses praised and adored by all he is unable even to reach the cynic's paradise that vitriolic sphere which has after all a serenity of its own the playboy to the end divided between rage and pity cheerful in his self-contempt an illusionist in the midst of his disillusion he is the symbol of the creative life in a country where by the goodness of god we have those three unspeakably precious things freedom of speech freedom of conscience and the prudence never to practice either of them he is the typical american people have said let heaven draw its own conclusions as for ourselves we are permitted to think otherwise he was the supreme victim of an epoch in american history an epoch that has closed has the american writer of to-day the same excuse for missing his vocation he must be very dogmatic or unimaginative says john eglinton with a prophetic note that has ceased to be prophetic who would affirm that man will never weary of the whole system of things which reigns at present 
we never know how near we are to the end of any phase of our experience and often when its seeming stability begins to pall upon us it is a sign that things are about to take a new turn read writers of america the driven disenchanted anxious faces of your sensitive countrymen remember the splendid parts your confrères have played in the human drama of other times and other peoples and ask yourselves whether the hour has not come to put away childish things and walk the stage as poets do end of chapter eleven part two recording by lucretia b end of the ordeal of mark twain by van wick brooks <laughs>